0: Hello, my name is Jacqueline Lane, and we're here with What I Wish I Knew, Episode 6. All through my life, I've loved to learn, I've loved to ask people why, and I'd love to understand what makes people tick. Um, And at Verisint, we're all about digging into what industry leaders can share with us, and really with you, that we heard that you care about and that you want to know more about. And that's what this series is all about, giving you information from experts on what you want to know more about. The last few episodes, we've been talking about how to manage change, how to motivate sellers, making changes internally, because what we're faced with today and right now is a volatility that's kind of unprecedented. We're hearing our customers say that there's a pivot from revenue at any cost to balanced, sustainable revenue. And today, I am joined by Sam Copperell. He is the Chief Commercial Officer at SAMA, this super cool executive coaching platform, Um, He started out as an individual contributor, but uh, has evolved and moved on to CCO, um, but certainly has the customer at heart still. So Sam, thank you so much for being here today.
1: Hi, Jackie. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Um, There's certainly been some some bumps along that (laughs) road.
0: Well, hopefully we'll hear a couple of stories about that and how you got over it. Um, So again, thank you for being here. So considering our topic today is about this shift right from re- companies bringing on revenue at any cost to holy cow we need to pump the brakes and figure out how to understand sustainable revenue and how to make that pivot let's let's start a little bit about how as a CCO um, your priorities may have changed over time and how it's m- maybe changed with market uncertainty.
1: Yeah, I, I think um, you know, whether whether it's market conditions being volatile or changing or even if I'm just in you know in a new role or a new business for the first few weeks, my my core priorities do tend to remain the same. So my focus is always on understanding the customers first, uh, focusing the go-to-market around them and their buying journey. And then something I, I've learned in more recent years is finding a rate limiting step. Um, specifically within the revenue engine and then focusing all our efforts on solving that one thing um, until it's fixed and you know you, you break the next thing, and you go on to that. I think in, in my role, I'm, I'm responsible for the entire customer lifecycle. So from the point where they have no idea who we are to um, hopefully the point where they love our service so much, they're telling all their friends about it. And our goal uh, or my goal is when a customer signs with me and my team they know they can trust us to solve their problem and add value on the on the long term.
0: Yeah. And, it, and I, it sounds like, you know, in previous conversations we've had and, and just in what you've said, um, making your customers, the priority has reaped rewards. Um, and so I, I think a lot of customers have or a lot of organizations and even leaders have struggled with the fact that, um, Maybe they've grown so fast, they haven't been able to give that one-on-one attention to different um, to different customers, or maybe the company's so big, they can't give that love and attention to a particular customer. Um, so considering this revenue at any cost to a more sustainable, balanced, healthy revenue, um, if someone is looking to make this transition, where do you think you start? What would you say is first?
1: Yeah, so I, I think the first thing is to focus on good customers um, and, and having a clearly defined go-to-market, not worrying so much about a massive total addressable market. That's great for investors and, and sits really in that conversation. Um, your your focus in revenue should really be around your serviceable, obtainable market, the people that you can, can win right now. Um, and that means understanding your ideal customers. Focusing on on selling to the good ones and not the bad ones. And and there certainly are bad ones. Um, when you think about go-to-market, it's, it's so important to interview your customers. You'll learn from them when to intercept their buying journey at the right time, the right stage, and you'll hopefully find your, your locksmith moment or moments. And that's where repeatability comes from. Um, the understanding of your customer, their job to be done, the core thing they're trying to solve, now and into the future, that's where that's where sustainability comes from. At least in my mind, you're you're trying to build a base of customers who trust you in the long term. So, bad customers, right? I I guess they show up in a number of a number of ways. And the message here: it's always tough to do this, but it's okay to say no to bad customers, and and to not sell to them. Um, bad customers, you know, they look like. Uh, people who are asking for discounts versus really understanding the value of what you offer, the full value. Um, they're, they're looking for exceptions to your commercial model, your T's and C's. Um, they're the ones that when it comes to renewal date, they're pushing back on that price rise that's already in the contract. Um, they're the ones that you know don't use the full feature set, even though you've invested in educating them on all the different things they can do. And you're going to see people who are, Asking you to bend the product roadmap to their specific need, even though no one else in the customer base is asking for that feature, or you know, or broadly, just anything about them that doesn't fit your company's vision and and your north star. Ultimately, those are the customers that are expensive to acquire, expensive to maintain, and they take up a disproportionate amount of your your business's time.
0: Yeah, I, I can I can certainly relate to having bad customers in the many years that I was a seller. Um, you know, especially when your pipeline is struggling and a time now when um buying groups are massive and uh, the sales cycles are taking long and the close rate is in the toilet. <laughs> there's there's a ton of stats out there that say that salespeople are struggling. You know, the big question is what can we do to make sales reps feel better? But I can certainly relate to um to the bad customer thing. Cause all that you want is for them to be happy, right? All you want is to keep those customers and, and for them to continue generating revenue, but also have this mutual value. Um, I think the big risk is when you do have those customers who aren't using your product set, who are looking for exceptions, all that, all that stuff, because really that that's a vulnerable takeaway, right? Like your that customer can churn at any point because they're not using all the value and they're not sharing the value journey with you. Um, so speaking of bad clients, I know I've wanted to do this a time or two, maybe with my kids. I don't know. Have you ever had to fire a client and why?
1: Yes. Yeah, I have. Um, in a previous role, we had a, a subset of clients who joined us really early on and they were paying a very low amount. Um, at the time we won them, we were really focused on proof of concept. Um, so we hadn't put much time into price discovery and figuring out what the it could or would bear in terms of price point. Over time, we combined our, our product features into an ecosystem and with loads of extra value came a new commercial model. Some of those customers, fortunately not many of them, um, they didn't change their usage patterns. They they were keeping to the old habits um, despite fantastic UX and you know, a CS team, client success team that We're investing hours in education and customization for them. At Renewal, um, we had a choice, really. Uh, Keep servicing them, keep the old price point, keep the old product features, um, or fire them. And spend those customer success hours with customers that we can delight, um, deprecate those old features and um, and old tech, and free up time for our engineers to focus on on the roadmap and the future vision. So it, it was an easy decision, really. Um the feedback loop from product vision to customer success is so important for that sustainability we talked about, and especially in the revenue model. Um, you know, I, as I think across product, engineering, marketing, sales, customer success, all those teams are, are constantly creating, setting and delivering on expectations. So it was an easy decision because the bottom line is you need to win and retain the customers who are who are willing to go on that journey with you.
0: Mm -hmm. I can't say that I've ever fired a client but I can certainly say as a as a former seller I have been told no when trying to bring on a client that just wasn't a great fit um and that's a that's a really hard lesson for a seller to learn is that it's not about bringing on revenue at all costs it's about bringing on smart revenue um and so this this creates this transition. Then, so we talked about from an organizational level, um, you know, when it's a smart business decision to to move forward from a client that doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, the second piece is tied to kind of seller behavior and how to meet the client where they are. Um, we talked a little bit about earlier about this locksmith moment, and when we were chatting about this in previous conversations. This was kind of an aha moment for me. And it's a it's a different way to look at something uh, that's been in sales training for many years. Tell me a little bit about the first time you heard about a locksmith moment, You know why it hit home for you and why do you think it's relevant when we look at ways to grow sustainably?
1: Yeah, so um, a, a locksmith moment is is kind of a story of business genius, if you like. Uh, and it's told by Matt Lerner and the team at System and um, I, I hope he doesn't mind me kind of plagiarizing his content, here, really, but um, it's really the idea of showing up to your prospect exactly where they are at the exact point of their need. So the example that that Matt kind of teaches is instead of this locksmith business investing in TV ads and billboards or even ranking highest for like locksmiths near me on Google, somebody, somebody figured out that no one is thinking about a locksmith until the point they really need one. And so the single best place to advertise their locksmith business is on a sticker underneath the lock of their customer's door. And I I love this because it's such a great example of knowing your customer and the exact right time to show up for them. And um, I think how that relates to sellers and revenue leaders is in terms of the customer's job to be done. Um, so some people might be familiar, others not, but it's originally a product design philosophy, if you like. Um, but sales can adopt this to understand what exactly their customer need and what they're trying to solve and to help you in your solution for them. So the way to think about jobs to be done is kind of like if somebody goes into a hardware store and they, they go to buy a drill, they, they don't want to buy that drill. Nobody wants a power tool just to have one. They really wanted to put a, a five-millimeter hole in their their wall. And I would wager most people don't want just a hole in the wall. They're trying to hang something, right? Maybe a picture. And maybe that's because three months ago, they promised their partner that um, they would hang that picture and they still haven't done it, right? So those people are hiring a drill to do the job of fulfilling that promise to their partner. And so that's what sellers need to really dig into is, What are the customer's jobs and their promises? I think, you know, more than ever before, it's so important to understand your, your customer and which features you should focus on if you're at that demonstration phase. And great discovery, great discovery questions will help you actually disqualify some of those bad prospects out, but they will help you uncover which of those core jobs to be done your buyer is trying to solve, which leaves you more time as a seller to position yourself as a trusted partner uh, instead of, you know, showing up and showing shiny features and nice to that they really don't care about.
0: Yeah, I, I think about when, talk, when talking about the shiny features, I I constantly am thinking about, you know, when I go car shopping and they show me all the stuff that people stereotypically want to see, like all the knobs and buttons. I'm not going to lie. That stuff is super exciting to me. And I walk out the car dealership every time thinking like, I'm buying this car. It's got all the buttons and it's got all the whistles. But that's not how people buy cars at the end of the day, and it's not how people buy tech at the end of the day. Um, so I, I think that's an interesting point you make, and it's a different way to look at the same thing we've been trying to tell our sellers this whole time, right? Don't just tell them the three features that they've asked about. Understand the job to be done. Like, why are you doing it? What is what's the catalyst for change here? You know, what's it, what difference is is going to make to your life? So kind of doing those like peeling the layers back um, to understand exactly what the problem is. And I think something interesting you said too, is the, the ability to disqualify clients that just aren't a great fit, right? Like these are the key value props we have based on, you know, the many clients we service. You don't seem to care about those things. You seem to care about these three and five other companies do that really well. So like, go talk to those guys. They're cheaper. They can get you up and running faster and, and you're going to see value fast. And then when you're ready, and you want more, you can come to us. Um, So thanks for that insight. I think it's always a good reminder. uh, And I love the Tag Locksmith moment. Um, So speaking of sellers, when they're trying to get to you, um, at the end of the day, people haven't changed. Buyers haven't changed. We're all still people buying from people. The difference is, is that we've got access to tons and tons of information. And that makes buyers more informed than ever before and also makes sellers kind of inundated with emails and texts and ads and all the rest. Um, When people are trying to prospect into you as chief commercial officer, what stands out to you? What can a seller do to stand out to you?
1: Yeah, so I think... So I think there's kind of two threads in, in this kind of conversation here. One is, one is outreach and, and the other is qualification. So if you think about the, the outreach, what we're really focused on at the moment is personalization. Um, first impressions really count, right? And the goal of outreach or, or prospecting, whatever you want to call it, um, some people get a little bit too focused on thinking the goal is the SQL, or booking that first meeting. And it's not, right? It's to start a relationship with your buyer and and begin really building that trust. So personalized outreach is something that I've seen. It works. It works on me. It works on uh, on my customers, but only if you do it right. And when I say that, I mean, your ask in that first meeting really shouldn't be super high friction. And, and by that, I mean, if you go from not, you know, never having spoken to this person to ask him for thirty minutes of their time and book a demo as a as a call to action. Um, that's really high friction versus offering them some uh, piece of content that's super high value, it's ungated, um, and it's easy for them to consume. There are um, you know, I, I know you like to talk about tools on this um, on this series and there's some great tools out there like Birdie. Um which combines with LinkedIn and helps you kind of kickstart your personalized message. It scans through the profile and, um, you know, gets you going in terms of um, past that blank page terror. Uh, but the the key here is not to try and do personalization en masse, right? It's a human connection and um, the human side of it is so important. So kind of in summary, I think bad personalization looks like hey, we went to the same uni, uh, you should buy from me. Uh, whereas I, I once received a, an email from a company I was aware of. Um, I wasn't really thinking about buying from them, didn't really need their service. But in the subject line of the email, um, the the seller uh, asked me which bar was better in, in the city that I went to university. And those bars only existed at that time. They don't exist anymore. So they'd gone through a process of research to try and get my attention that showed a lot of air and detail. So I clicked, I was interested. I looked at the email. I booked a meeting with them. I didn't buy with them, but they started that that trust relationship uh, from that point. And I think maybe on the, the qualification side of things, um, once that SQL is booked or that first meeting is in the diary, the number one thing I coach on is discovery. And I try to instill uh, a disqualification mindset into my team. So what that means is, you know, whether it's a new rep who's really eager to build their pipeline, or maybe it's a tenured rep who's, you know, trying to smooth out a bad patch, or just somebody who's super engaged and, you know, drinking the company Kool-Aid. The classic mistake I see is that those people expect that everyone wants and should buy your product and the best reps i've i've had the pleasure of working alongside and coaching are, are the ones who look for for reasons to disqualify deals out of the pipeline and you know often simply asking a customer like things seem okay right now why go through the pain and the hassle and the cost of of changing what you're doing and if your prospect can articulate why then great you've, you've got a good a deal in the, uh, in the pipeline, if not disqualify them.
0: I, yeah, that's an interesting thing. Um, I can remember doing that a handful of times and, and I mean, it's, I think that is a part of building credibility too. It's, it's this, I'm not trying to sell you something you don't need. It sounds like everything's going well. Um, I do love the disqualification mindset, uh, in, in former sales worlds, uh, the, Qualify in everything, or happy ears, can be dangerous and and leads to you know an inflated pipeline that tends to get stalled at stage one or two, right? Yeah, Um, (laughs) absolutely. Yeah. So when when we talked about the number of different tools and birdie, um, the world is abuzz with AI. Everybody wants to talk about AI. Um, Gotten a lot of different. What's the word I'm looking for? But we've gotten a, a bunch of different opinions, I guess, or certainly levels of interest in AI since we've started the series and and some look at it uh, as kind of critical to business success and others have barely started. So what is your take on AI today?
1: My take, um, not that I'm an expert on AI, but I, I think, you know, everyone is talking about it, right? And I... Th- from from my viewpoint, at least the the well informed ones seem to frame it as a, a thinking partner. Um, in my opinion, the the shortcuts you can achieve they only really work if you invest in the editorial side of it. So investing in the prompts that you use initially um, and the refinement uh, with the the after product, if you like, um, using AI to research a prospect and get you past that uh, blank page that we talked about when crafting an email or a call script is great. Uh, But again, just to kind of hammer this point home, you're a human trying to connect with another human and you you do need to sound like it. Um, Where I've seen real power though is um, in pulling out data and insights from conversations, especially where you have a large data set. Uh, The impact there can be incredible, whether it's kind of driving prompts for your rep to pick up on uh, a competitor, and using uh, auto-generated conversation cards to help them position your product against that incumbent, or even uh, to help marketing use the right language in their content. And the key here is that you can spend all the money in the world owning your unique search terms, which describe your product perfectly. Um, But especially if your category is new, then those people with pain today may not know how to find you. So you need to use their language to help them find you. And AI, conversational intelligence tools, can, can be great for pulling out those trends and the specific search terms your your business should be bidding. Um, you know, there's, there's a trend now as well towards using voice notes instead of uh, in-mails and connecting on WhatsApp even. Um, using video software like Loom to to deliver a pitch instead of paragraph after paragraph in an email, and there's software out there now that allows you uh, to save time in that process by learning uh, scripts and voice patterns, um, and even you know AI avatars that look like you using your voice um, and creating a bespoke pitch for your prospects. Uh, I'm excited to see where it goes. It's a, it's a crazy concept to kind of wrap your head around, but it could work.
0: When I've used it personally, just to share my own anecdote, is that I've taken, again, this like giant volume of information and you ask for insights from that information and it is so fast. So really, um, you know, when you originally said it's kind of a thinking tool, um, It speeds up the manual efforts and then enables you to to, um, find information or dig through the most pertinent stuff. So I found that super useful. So it sounds like we're on the same page.
1: Yeah, definitely. Um,
0: I have been asking you question after question after question, and I'm going to do it real fast because we're going to move to the the quick question segment. Um, Are you ready?
1: Yeah, let's do it.
0: My very favorite question to start with, I think that the question might be longer than your answer. This is how I construct the quick questions. When you were a kid, what did you want to be when you grew up?
1: Um, a, a pilot in the RAF. Uh, I, I had really bad eyesight in my teens, so it wasn't to be. Um, not that I would have definitely been qualified, but uh, let's just say thank God for laser eye surgery.
0: Amazing. I like to ask that question because anybody who ended up in sales, it, Five was never like, I want to be a salesperson. Um, so it's always fun to see where people ended up uh, from their original dream. If you had a piece of advice for a seller who was brand spanking new, just starting out, what would you say to give them advice? And what would you say advice to ignore?
1: Um, I mean, the definitely the advice uh, to listen to would be ask more questions and actually listen for the answers Um, be comfortable with silence because that happens just before the gold appears.
0: Amazing. Anything to, to completely ignore?
1: Um, may, oh, I don't know. Maybe that everyone definitely should buy your product.
0: That's oh, that's a good one. The happy ears, the happy ears. Yeah. Um, do you have a number one follow on LinkedIn?
1: Um, yeah, at the moment, it's uh, Sam Jacobs. He's the CEO of Pavilion. Uh, his posts are quite often controversial, but they come from a place of honesty and integrity. And, um, you know, if you get to know him, you can see he's been there and done it.
0: Amazing. Thank you. I'll look up Sam Jacobs. Um, personally, what was your very favorite meal of all time?
1: Ooh, uh, easy one. So that's uh, a Yule board or a, a Christmas buffet. Uh, at Bock Holmen in uh, in Stockholm, Sweden. So uh, imagine a, a wooden a wooden built house on a lake in winter, snow, ice on the lake. You walk in, there's warmth. Uh, you stay there for hours, eating course after course of uh, different foods, pickled herring under different ways, uh, plenty of aquavit, which is Swedish schnapps, uh, and no one ever asks you to leave. It's uh, you know the perfect experience.
0: Amazing it's like visiting your grandma um, <laughs> don't leave i'll I'll fix your socks um, very last since this is the series, what do you wish you knew more about?
1: Yeah you can uh, you probably guess from my answers so far but the the thing I'm obsessed with, the thing I'm kind of always trying to learn more about is our customers whether it's whether it's the current ones or the ones we haven't won yet. Um, I'm focused on what's impacting their decision-making, where do they go for advice, uh, what are they trying to solve for, and, and I guess what are the barriers that are preventing them from doing that.
0: Amazing, and, and thank you for that. I, I think that we always need the reminder that even at the most senior level of organizations, um, the passion for customers is ultimately what drives the customer journey, customer satisfaction, customer advocacy, Um, we've covered a lot today. I want to say a big, big thank you. I'd say some of the key takeaways, um, in terms of developing sustainable revenue. The first is, um, you know, from the, from the top level down, be willing to assess the real value of your customer. Um, in, in addition to the, the acquisition costs and the long-term value of your customers, um so that you can determine if it makes sense for them to stay your customer. Are they worth as much as you're spending in time? Um, And be ready to say no and potentially fire a customer. Uh, The second piece is on the sales side. So enabling your sellers to say no as well. Um, Supporting them in their decision to disqualify so that you can build a sustainable um, client base um, and a more likely happy client base. And I can't help but love the locksmith moment that kind of sales drill down where you continue to peel back until you understand exactly why someone needs that product or service to accomplish what they have to do day by day. Um, So again, Sam, thank you so much. Um, I appreciate all the insight and your honesty and your humor. So thank you so much for being here. And we will see you in the next episode of What I Wish You